welcome to all of you um, to this um, event on dance in the literary festival. So, titled Dance, Text and Translation, Creating a Dialogue. Um, here is where I think we got a little puzzled, all right? And uh, I'm thinking about talking a literary festival. So we got the text here, all right? We got the text on this side of the triangle. And then this is actually sponsored by the Forum for European Philosophy and the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. Now, we don't have, you know, a funny, uh, we don't have a, a nice uh, um, icon here, so I just put, put Bopper up there. You know, so <laughs> got a bit of philosophy here. We got the LSE there. And then we got the literary festival, so we're talking text. So somehow we have text. We have the London School of Economics and Political Science. And then, just sort of to bring the two of us together, I mean, the Forum for European Philosophy and the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method, I just put up Aristotle there. Okay? So now, here's a little girl, little girl in a tutu, all right? And somehow, I have to get the little girl in the tutu to fit in the triangle. London School of Economics and Political Science, <coughs> Literary Festival, and Philosophy Department. All right? So that's the challenge, really. So I thought, how am I going to do that? Let's start on this side first, because I think it's you know the easiest way to go. This is going to be a bit of a stretch here. So anyway, let's start on the text side. And where else do we go to the founder of the order of the whirling dervishes? That is the great poet Yalaladun Rumi, uh, 13th century mystic poet. And uh, he was very much in favor of dancing and thought about a deeply spiritual grounding. So here's a little poem by him, which I thought was wonderful. Since we live where everything is music, everything is dancing, watch the dust grains moving in the light near the window. Their dance is our dance. It's wonderful. A spring wind moves to dance any branch that isn't dead. All right? So I thought, here's a text, you know, reflecting on dance and, you know, and then inspiring the order of the, the whirling dervishes here. Um, still very active. I think uh, there is a, a Sufi group with whirling dervishes in, in London, if you're so inspired. Um, next challenge, I thought, what else can we say about text and dance? Well, there are these really funny diagrams. And, you know, we know how to capture music in text. I mean, that's how we do these things, right? But how do we capture dance in text? And lots and lots of different notations. And I think this is just you know, one example of it. But we'll actually be talking about that, you know, the idea of sort of capturing dance in, in text. So. We got the left top side of the triangle taken care of. So then I thought, what about the London School of Economics and Political Science? We'll start with the political science first. And here is, you know, Emma, Emma Goldman, um, 
Lithuanian-born American anarchist and writer. It's the anarchism, of course, you know, the political movement I want to capture here. End of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And there is this famous quote, which he never said. <laughs> if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Now, it's not just that it's all made up, but apparently she was dancing, and one of her comrades comes over to her and says, you know, it doesn't behoove somebody who is associated with the cause to be dancing like that, right? And then she goes into this, you know, long tirade about how ridiculous this is and so on. And it's actually that tirade that is turned into these lines, right? But, you know, the essence is there, right? So we see, you know, how somebody very much involved with the political, with political causes, you know, wants to dance, right? Economics, economics, how are we going to do that? Well, that's the man on the 20-pound note, of course. Here he is, Adam Smith, all right? And the wonderful thing about Adam Smith, great economist, wrote The Wealth of Nations, but he did write a lot of other things, too, and everything Adam Smith wrote, we appropriate in the London School of Economics as being ours, you know, so... Here's what he says about dance. After the pleasures which arise from the gratification of the bodily appetites, there seem to be no more natural to man than music and dancing. Okay, and this is from Adam Smith on the nature of the imitation which takes place in what we call the imitative arts. So this man did not only write The Wealth of Nations, but had a lot to say about other things too, including dance. So there we are. So I think that we got the little girl in the tutu, in the triangle. We got the little girl in the tutu, in the triangle, all right? Um, bit of Adam Smith here, bit of Emma Golden here, the text connection, and so there we are. Justified the event, all right? <laughs> so now the only thing that I need to do is to introduce our guests. So I called it the cast, just sort of to be in line with the dance world, I guess, right? It's not the usual term used in academia, which is the cast in this case. So we have uh, Yasmin Vardeman um, from the Yasmin Vardeman Company. Um, now, um, she is the artistic director of this company, was born on a kibbutz and started dancing in a kibbutz dance company. Uh, then in 1997, lucky for us, she moved to London. And, uh, and then, you know, there is the history of the Yasmin Bargman Company. But I thought what was really interesting was all these wonderful names, you know, like Lore, 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 and Ticklish, and, you know, for the dance pieces that she had done. Um, so then there's Professor Helen Thomas from the London College of Fashion. And uh, she is a sociologist of dance and culture. Um, she's done research on uh, creative dance apprentices in the Southeast Dance National Dance Agency. And this is working with you know, kids who are excluded or maybe sometimes include, exclude themselves from mainstream schooling. All right. Um, so she's working right now on a book called The Body in Everyday Life. So, welcome home. Um, and then we will have um, 
the interviewer, which is uh, Dana Mills from the University of Oxford. Um, she is working there on a DPhil uh, with Professor Frieden on uh, dance and political theory, sort of the relationship between dance and political theory. So yeah. appropriate Goldman, right? Um, and so she did a master's degree actually in Tel Aviv. Um, and there the idea was uh, she was interested in sort of how it is that dance was a political force in the early days of, um, of Israel. So I think um, then there are the two people sort of, you know, behind the screen, but very active, right? <laughs> uh, Dr. Jennifer Tarr here from um, LSE Methodology, and there is me from Philosophy um, as um, organizers. So, Dana, I'm going to hand it over to you, and take it away. Take it away, Yasmin uh, and Helen. Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Look, and thanks, for, thanks to LC for hosting this event. Um, I'd like to start with a question for both of you. How do you view the connection between dance and literature, and how do you feel about using texts in choreographic works? Okay. So, uh, literature and choreography, I see them both as art forms, um, tool of expressions and communication to express ideas, thoughts, to tell a story, and the combination of the two, and sometimes the combination of the two with other art forms and other tools or way of expression, uh, creates a multi-layered art product, and that's what I'm interested in creating. As a choreographer or as an artist, when I'm creating work, I'm not uh, interested to be stuck to one way of expression, which is using the body, but I'm interested in creating a multi-layer product that communicates on different levels and through different channels. So I'm using a lot of text in my work. And the way that I'm normally using text is, or when I'm using text is when I, um, I see that there is no other way to communicate an idea or to deliver information that I want the audience to receive in a visual or physical way. So, for example, um, Justicia, it's a piece that I created a um, few years ago and had a, has a lot of text in it. Um, it's about, well, it's about the notion of guilt and the notion of justice. And it's a, it's a set in, a, in, a, in two places, in a courtroom and in a group therapy for people who live with guilt. And the, uh, what the audience uh, presented with is a drama it's a court case, and they approach as a jury member by the defense lawyer. Um, the way that I use text is to give the audience, the jury, information about those characters. What is their history? Where they come from? How they met? Who they are? Information that I cannot deliver in any visual or other way. Um, and so that was one of the way I use text, is just to kind of give different layer of information the other way is I use text to contradict what actually you see or to give completely different information because I'm not interested in using text to say exactly the same story that the body can tell. That's, um, I always actually try to avoid that. So if I have a, a, a scene that is very clearly visually what it, what it delivers, I won't use text in that. But uh, uh, for example, there is a scene that is um, Part of the defense lawyer, she's, there is a scene that presented that is very clear what's happening, but the text that the defense lawyer is giving is contradicting whatever you see on stage. 
And there I put the audience in a position, the audience or the jury or the human being in a position that uh, all of us, some of us, uh, believe to what we hear, but some of us only believe to what we see. But this, in this event, and actually in the complicity of life, you have to decide what do you choose. Do you choose to believe to what you see or to what you hear? So you kind of bombarded with information that contradicts itself, and you have to make your point. And that's that was the all the all idea of the piece because it was about justice and how do we make how do we deal with justice and what is reality and the information that we get what is real what really happened so which as a jury member you deal as human being with it all the time and that that's, was the intention of the piece so uh, I guess I using texts to transfer the information that I want to. Um, to deliver the audience. It's not always a verbal text or visual text. A lot of time it's a text as texture because texture is text as well for me. So I use texture on stage in the scenery or in the um, element, the visual element that creates textures, that creates um, different um, different symbols that we can read, that we can associate with, like letters. So literature for me is also any texture that creates symbols that are very easy to read. Um, I don't know if that's the definition, that's uh, but that's the definition how I would describe it. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I think uh, Yasmin's uh, discussion is quite, is quite postmodern in its um, approach, actually, because it's, a, it's kind of pulling together and also pulling asunder um, uh, traditional concepts of signs and symbols and signifiers and signifiers and so forth in quite interesting ways in relation to both the body and to the um, uh, to sound or to, to text and I think um, it, it's quite clear that if you look across the history of dance for example for classical ballet and, and certainly modern dance and its subsequent development into postmodern and, uh, um, and contemporary work that's uh, here today is that Actually, literature or text has been really key in the development of, say, ballet stories and uh, uh, representations in a way. And certainly thinking through some of my early work in relation to Martha Graham and how important, um, say, Emily Dickin Dickinson's um, writing was to her extraordinary work in the 1940s and Letter to the World, which is almost like a total theatrical experience where... Um, the, um, where the movement actually is primary, obviously, for Graham, much more than anything else. But actually, the, the, the music, the sound, the costume, the body, everything is completely integrated into it, in a way which um, Jasmine's work is actually is, is knocking against some of that integration, I think, in some ways, very interestingly. And, you know, Isadora Duncan, who was very important in, in, uh, in, kind of, uh, in some ways in kind of freeing um, the dancer's body from the restrictions of both corsets and everything else. In electrician, Walt Whitman was very important for her. Um, um, I'm also thinking about, I, I want to see um, Javier de Fruto's work on, um, which was part of the show for the Spirit of Diaghilev last, uh, last November, I think it was, which was both utterly shocking and beautiful at the same time. And it's quite, I mean, he, he based that work on, and it, I think it's called, let me just say what it's, it, um, 
It's called The, um, the Eternal Damnation of Sancho and Sanchez. Um, and it was at Sadler's Wells. And they, um, he used text coming down through into the work, but it was actually based on some Jean Cocteau's um, scenarios, which, of course, Cocteau was very important in relation to Diaghilev himself. And so there's a kind of link within that tradition. And, of course, other um, extraordinary, the late um, lamented um, uh, Pino Bausch and the notion of sound and how important the... The, the sound and the body was in, in conjunction with each other. Um, I've, yesterday I was teaching my performance for design for performance students, and we're working on uh, Bill, looking at Bill T. Jones's work still here, which actually um, caused extraordinary controversy in um, criticism when it came out because it was based in the 19, late 1990s because it was based on the testimonies of people who were dying either with AIDS or were terminally ill. And Arlene Croce, the kind of doyen of dance criticism, uh, thought that it was a kind of heart back to the early kind of political days of dance in the 1930s and argued that politics and art should be actually completely separate. And I think if you, if you look at Jasmine's work, they're absolutely mm -hmm. integral um, and challenging as well. Um, so... I think that was, um, you know, Bill T. Jones's work is very important in relation to that because it's both very beautiful, but at the same time, so he, he used the voices of the words uh, that people actually spoke about in terms of their, um, their, their terminal illness, but at the same time transformed that into movement. So it wasn't, the, the words did not mean the same as the movement, but the, the words became the inspiration for the gestural processes within the dance itself. Um, and Crochet was very interesting because she'd never even seen the dance despite the fact she was criticising it herself. So, I mean, I think that th those kinds of things become really important in that, and also the, the very late mentioned Merce Cunningham as well, and his work with John Cage and all of the, um, the kind of um, artists with whom he worked, and, and how sound or what Cage would call sound, as opposed to music, became very important. And also the relationship between what happens when texts, where texts become sounds within a dance performance, because that kind of changes it a bit, I think, as well, because then we're not talking about necessarily words or what's written, you know, the translation from the written word, but actually it's something about a different sound. So the relationship between sound and movement and relationships and context become really key within that. And I think um, Andrea Lepecki has recently argued that what's happening in dance is moving away from a kind of um, a centrality of dance, if you like, of, of, uh, within the framework and moving towards much more kind of performance or performative element which uses both the body um, as of the dancers as actually key that embodied practice as key but also the perceptual awareness of um, the outside if you like in relation to that too so I think it's, it, it's very interesting and integrating but I'm, I'm really interested in the way in which I guess the way in which words can or text if you like becomes different when it's sounded in the picture because uh, it puts into a different dimension. So for me, it works much more closely with, with then um, perhaps notions of music. Um, 
Uh, and also, I guess, um, when it doesn't work is when dancers are not aware of their of how to use sound, mm-hmm. I think. And, um, and you see that can be quite jarring in that, um, because they, they, I suppose they don't use sound in the same way that they might use their bodies mm-hmm. in, in a very articulate way. And I think it can become a bit yeah. naff, actually, <laughs> if I was being honest about it. Yeah. And perhaps some of the stuff that you know I was already doing in the 60s or something like that is what yeah. we used to do that, but not really using sound in a... The use of sound is very is very important in sound and vocals because they add again they add another layer of information. A lot of time I ask my dancers to use sound when when they work and just to become natural about their behavior so they don't mimic things. And they might use it on stage as well. And you just create a layer because when you have anger, if you if you um, try to be aggressive or angry, you almost never would do it silently. You, naturally, you will, you will let your voice go out as well. So you cannot not use that. And even if the audience don't hear what they say, but they have this layer of information. Or when, and also the tonation that we use. When we speak, we always use different tonation to express different things. You don't say, I love you. <laughs> you know, you say it, or you don't say, oh, I hate you. You know, yes. it, it just is a different thing. To, you use completely different form of tonation and expression to, to say those things, and it's to the, you know, to the kind of the round expression that you want to deliver. Um, but I think we all, we all as human beings express ourselves with text and language and, and, and communicate with that all the time. So when you connect to your natural, to your natural way of expressing, then, then that's uh, when, when you don't try to act it, but to behave it. Um, it's always adds to what you want to communicate. But it's true, a lot of time it does look on stage. Or even if you amplify it, suddenly you hear amplification of, of somebody that you see natural person with amplified voice and it looks so unbalanced. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's those little, little details. That's mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, what are the challenges on the one hand and the merits on the other of writing about dance? Um, what may be gained or lost in this process? Um, I would say that for me, actually, for me, I I think that the challenges are also what makes it really exciting, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, one of the challenges, obviously, is how do you articulate something which is unspeakable in any ways, um, which is... You know, which how do you do that? And and I think perhaps one of the ways in which and actually it's often not spoken anyway, mm. and actually it's learned often very physically as opposed to um, texturally, if you like. Um, dancing and boxing have that very similar. I'm working on dancing and boxing just now, and I think they're they're both the same in relation to that. Um, but. For me, actually, that challenge becomes actually something which is really interesting. Like, how do you begin to look at the relationship between um, uh, something which is, a, a, you know, it's an aesthetic and body practice um, in relation to a particular context or, or whatever? And for me, as, I suppose, as a sociologist whose first training actually was in dance anyway, 
um, uh, that becomes really key. And I think one of the really interesting things about working in dance and actually working on movement is that you're immediately brought into a kind of sociological realm, if you like, because um, as soon as you're talking about dancing, you're talking about movement, you're talking about relationships between bodies. Um, it, it raises all kinds of questions about gender and about um, sexuality. Um, it raises questions about the relationship to space and time um, within particular contexts. And um, again, for me, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not a journalist, so I'm not really interested in representing dance on, in text. You know, really, rather my projects are kind of there. Um, my interest in dance will, will emerge out of a project that I'm interested in, whether it's dance injuries or whether it's you know looking at older people dancing or whatever. I'm also not um, necessarily only interested in performance dance, although I mean that's my great passion. But um, so I'm just interested in dance as a as a situated aesthetic practice and how that relates to um, the social conditions and expressions, if you like, within the context of culture. And actually, for me, very importantly, how do you begin even to think about analysing that? Um, and, and I suppose if I think about my own research development um, throughout that, coming you know, from a dance background, coming into sociology, thinking, God, this is it, this is, I can bring the two of them together, Fantastically well, but how do you then begin to do it? Um, uh, and so I begin to, I suppose, my projects have been really about developing a kind of um, a, a flexible methodology which might actually begin to draw out some of those issues which are unspeakable, but that might speak to um, social um, contexts and um, you know that kind of thing. So. For me, it's actually how do you preserve those qualities of dance which are the unspeakable um, and bring them into the visual, if you like, or the textual, and at the same time preserve the demands of a sociology which is always to look at um, the social world. Um, so dance becomes, for me, like a social fact in a Durkheimian sense, I suppose. Um, and then how you begin to play with that mm. while retaining its specificity. So you're kind of trying to hold two things together at one time. Not always successfully, actually, mostly not successfully, actually, I say that. But, um, but that's what it is. But it's very different form from the kind of stuff that Jasmine is doing, which is actually you're doing that through your embodied practice mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. Well, um, obviously I'm not writing about dance, but I guess the challenges would be not to describe and judge, but to really interpret and being a creative interpreter, because, uh, you know, we know that the viewer and interpretation is actually an extension of the creating itse creation itself, as who say that, is it Derrida? Look, you would know. Um, is it Derrida who wrote about the extension of, of the art itself? Is actually it's actually the interpretation of it, no? So it's, Derrida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was he was talking about he was talking about actually how do you interpretating interpretating work? 
mm-hmm. is actually, the, or interpretation of what you see is actually part of the creation itself, is the extension of the creation. Each, whatever work it is, whatever creative work it is, and I think that would be probably the biggest challenge is to make your own creation by your <coughs> interpretation rather than just describe and uh, describe what you see and give a judgment, which will happen mostly in critique, mm-hmm. not so much in, in what mm-hmm. Helen is doing, obviously. But mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and I, I mean, I think actually thinking about um, doing kind of any movement dance analysis, if you like, I mean, for me, it all starts with the point, it's a bit like, qualitative analysis itself, you all start you're, you're analysing interviews, you start with the description um, and it takes a bit of time in order to come out of the description mm-hmm. into the analytic and it's precisely the same I, I think for when I'm looking at movement, if I'm looking at performance and how I begin to think about that is, is generally it, is, it comes through the descriptive thing but of course because you're always working in relation to the third dimension mm-hmm. that is space that everything's going on at the same time so that, you know, one arm's moving, the head's going this way. So you're thinking about those things all at the same time. And it does become very descriptive. And then you can move through that layer, I think. I think it's an important aspect because you have to pay attention. I mean, I feel very passionately as someone who was trained in kind of lab and um, analysis particular effort that you have to really attend to the movement um, and to think about it, you know, Carefully, and I think, and I do feel that when I'm doing it, when I'm thinking about it, I'm actually doing it as well. So in my head, I'm physically doing it because we are, um, even though we do an old dance, we all kind of mostly move, mm-hmm. and so we have there is a kind of relationship between mm-hmm. our moving sentient beings, if you like, and how we grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, what is before us and make it in a way we make that our own don't we mm. so we make your dance mm. our dance yeah. through our watching so mm. and, and through our articulation of that as well so I, I do feel that's really those kind of levels of analysis are really quite important actually for me anyway. mm-hmm. I, I, I just want to add to that I think it's, it's going being able to go beyond the movement and the shapes and go into the content because that's as an artist that's what is important for me and only using the 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 dance or any visual elements is to communicate the content the content so so that's probably the challenge again is to look at it not as the final thing the movement is not the final thing it's just a tool to deliver something else or to tell a story mm. And, and that's why it's, I think that's why it's so powerful because mm. and that's why it leads you onto those other things like gender and race and yeah. politics mm-hmm. and particularly new work I think mm-hmm. and, um, which are you know they yeah. are issues which yeah. are important to you know to us in our everyday life but also in the wider socio-political sphere I think mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. your work is very challenging I think in that way. Um, question for Jasmine. Yeah. Um, which text throughout your life and work as a choreographer inspired you, and how was this inspiration used on stage? Okay. Um, throughout my my creation, creative life, I've been inspired by a lot of different texts because I'm I'm reading a lot all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I want to talk about one 
one particular one, which is uh, called Illness's Metaphor by Susan Sontag, mm -hmm. which was a very, very influential text for me when, um, on my creative life, but um, especially when I created Lullaby, which was a piece that was dealing with um, our relationship as a, as a society with illness and hospitalization. And it's dealt with the vulnerable position of being a patient in a hospital, in an institution that's supposed to look after you and carry you in this relationship between um, medical staff and patients and, and visitors. And it looks at the architecture of the very cold white box that actually hosting it uh, our probably most peak of emotional journey in life, no matter if it's an operation, a birth of a new child, or any other, or, or caring for some loved one that is in a hospital. It's always kind of a peak on our journey, so it's content and it's a very emotional, emotional uh, moment, but it is a very kind of cold, architecturally very cold uh, location. Um, and I mainly dealt in uh, with uh, cancer and the process of cancer. And Susan Sontag, when she's talking in illness metaphor, she's talking about how we in a society looking at cancer, how we talk about cancer in literature, in philosophy, in history, in art. And she's mainly focusing about the fact that we all drawing our terminology from a warfare. When we talk about cancer, we're talking about an invader that attacks our body something that we have to fight against. We're using chemotherapy, which is a, a, a chemical warfare uh, to fight against this uh, invader. And she's, um, it's very, it's very clever text and I was very much influenced by that when I created um, Lullaby. And um, I thought, because we were talking about showing element from, from the work, so it will be easier, easier to visualize it. So we might just play this moment so you can kind of visualize and see how it's been used um, as well. I'm going to talk about today is notorious for attacking parts of the body that are embarrassing to acknowledge, such as the bladder, the breasts, the colon, the cervix, the rectum, and the testicles, etc., etc. It's an insidious disease that can strike anywhere and doesn't knock before it enters the body. The mission is to retaliate and eliminate the disease as soon as possible. To fight or crusade against the disease, the patient is to be bombarded in toxic rays and chemical warfare. The aim is to kill the disease without killing the patient. 
radical, the treatment. The disease may mount a new assault on the organism. The body is the victim. It's invariably excruciatingly painful. The patient's body is considered to be under attack. The only treatment... ...is to counter-attack. We are at war. The disease will try to infiltrate the body. Symptoms of tiredness, nausea, and hair loss may occur. Rest is vital for recuperation before the next round of treatment. Now, however many, however many scans are taken of the body landscape, most remissions are temporary. it is that your body is trying to commit suicide or just accept the fact that this disease is part of your body your body created it it might be better not to fight within your own body treatment can sometimes be more painful than the illness itself Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. metaphor, so, so, social political metaphor to everything in life, 
to put a mirror in front of ourselves and to recognize the things that we don't like is the hardest to do. And when we are talking about our society, for example, to see elements that we don't like in ourselves and to accept as they are part of us um, is something that I'm, I'm very interested in my work. So a, a lot of time it's very easy to say, oh, those youngsters, they are from this and this background, that's why they're behaving that and that, rather than say, maybe there is a problem in how we educate our young people or to take responsibility on things. So it's a kind of a metaphor. The cancer is actually part of our body, it's part of ourselves. You can recognize that it's part of you, it's part of yourself and relate to it as, or you can say it's an outside invader. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's something that I'm just interested in because I'm interested in those kind of difficult, a lot of time I hear people saying, why do you deal with aggressive and violence? Unfortunately, it's part of our society. We are living in a very violent time. And we are, I mean, the humankind have this capacity to turn against itself. And it's something that I'm interested in because it's something in our capacity, in our kind of nature. So not, dance is not just about beauty and creating beauty, beautiful shapes. And it's also about communicating thoughts and idea. It's an art form and that's what I'm interested in. So that's um, just it. Um, a question for both of you, but perhaps uh, Helen, able. you spoke about it a bit earlier. Um, do you see the relationship between dance and dance notation in a similar light to the relationship between music and musical score? Um, not really. Um, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a version of dance notation which will say, yes, it's, it's the equivalent of a musical score, uh, uh, there are some kind of very strong love notators who would say mm -hmm. actually the score is the text yeah. interestingly um, uh, um, Anne Hutchison Guest is one of those actually who would, who would argue that but I would argue that's not the case I mean there is um, unlike um, uh, western musical notation there's no in single form of movement notation or dance notation which is acceptable to everyone mm -hmm. just about there are many different forms. Um, there's love notation. There's um, or kind of topical love and there's yeah, yeah, and and what man isn't it? Yes, and uh, there's Benny's system, which is in the stay. Um, uh, Cunningham had his own system. You probably have your own way of looking. I don't know how you do that, but um, and certainly I know that Wayne McGregor has been working with. Um, uh, a, a neuropsychologist in Cambridge mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, with the, cra the crash uh, lot down there um, to kind of develop some kind of meditative form of, of movement there. So in a way we don't have that um, kind of skill, but also I think part of the problem is that we that we do have you know the third dimension as well. It's a spatial element which mm -hmm. is quite different from, and, and how do you take account of that? And I, and I suppose that um, lab notation, for example, starts, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's vertical as opposed to mm -hmm. horizontal um, and, uh, and can take account of different aspects of the body all going out to the side. Um, uh, I think the problem actually perhaps comes if, if you see it as a one-to-one -one relationship between what happens in the text and what happens in the movement. And I think I've certainly seen... Um, uh, Reconstructions that used to be called in the 1980s, 1990s, of um, say Doris, early Doris Humphrey works, which actually were so static 
that you kind of lost any feeling of the dance at all. I've seen other people develop that, like Leslie Main, for example, develop Doris Humphreys. She has a company which is dedicated to, I suppose, retaining that um, the the Doris Humphrey ethos, if you like. Um, and she would use notated scores, but in a slightly different way. And it took us. Um, she was a PhD student at Roehampton, and I worked with her with uh, with Stephanie Jordan and. Um, it took us quite a long time for us to convince her that what she was doing was not reconstruction. She was doing co-creation, actually, mm-hmm. um, and co-authoring the work. Um, and, uh, and she produced this kind of version of Doris Humphrey's classic Shaker um, piece. And it didn't look anything like it, but for her it was very, it was very similar <laughs> to it. So we suggested that perhaps she might give it to the, st- the, the other PhD students for them to have a look at it, but not tell them what it was. And none of them, and this is a very famous piece, Humphrey's work's been very much notated. She was very clever about having her work notated in lab notation and preserving that. Um, and um, it's from 1930, I think. And um, nobody, none of the students, recognised it at all they thought it was just a very interesting piece of work but they had no kind of recognisable framework and I think that's the thing because musicians don't stick to exactly what's on the text and I think when uh, when um, the kind of lab and notation bureau in New York started out you always have to be certified to be able to do it um, um, but they were very strict about you know, how you, how you would do it um, but that's kind of loosened up much more um, because you end up you, you end up getting something which is like frozen, you know, it's in aspic it's, com- you know, it's completely frozen and the whole thing about any dance anyway is different on each and every occasion isn't it, because something will happen, the audience is looking at it from a different space, something else has happened Graham used to love to tie herself up with all kinds of ribbons apparently um, to make it very difficult for her to do anything um, because she gets so bored doing the same thing over and over again. So, and this it is different in every occasion, but I think what it can do is give a sort of structure to a piece of work, and um, which may then be able to be developed. And uh, and it is difficult for us, you know, in dance because we don't, you know, our tradition is that embodied practice which is passed down. Mm-hmm usually through generations of dancers, actually, and the people who performed it. Um, and um, for dance scholars or you know, sociologists like myself, it's great to get hold of something that you can actually see. You know, because unlike literature or even the theatre, you have, you have a text in literature that you can... And I know that text will change too, and there are many different versions of doing Shakespeare or, or even the writing itself, and what, how, that, how that would be... Um, Redone for the 20th century, 21st century, whatever. But but nevertheless, it, it is very um, it, it's very gratifying to be able to go and to see something. And does we always feel we've got this very tiny little tradition, and that we want to kind of um, grasp that more. But the other side of that is that you know it is a living tradition, and it has to change. And um, and normally that tradition goes when those dancers, when those choreographers. Those contemporary choreographers themselves go doesn't stay very long. Mm-hmm. It'd be very interesting to see what happens with Merce Kelly, for example, mm-hmm. particularly as he wants a zero sum, you know, at the end of it. So actually, to be true to his own his own philosophy, that there will be nothing <laughs> at the end, um, and that would be very interesting to see mm-hmm. how that how that works.
context. I don't know how yeah, yeah. jazz is. I um, I think the relationship between dance notation and musical score uh, they're huge because um, musical instruments are tuned to mm -hmm. sound exactly the same. So when you press on do on the piano, it's mm -hmm. a big do. And so when you create a musical score, you know what you want to hear. Dancers are completely different. They are not instruments. Mm -hmm. So you cannot tune, you cannot write and things that every dancer will mm -hmm. do exactly the same. And actually as a choreographer, I'm celebrating the difference mm -hmm. of the skills and the emotion and the things that they bring. That's one thing. The other thing, it doesn't take into account internal organs. That's a lot of time when I when I talk to the dancers, I want them to feel how their, for example, how their guts are contracted, mm -hmm. or how, for example, or, or if their heartbeats are kind of accelerate, mm -hmm. um, and that's what. And um, then, then there is the thing. Even if you look at the form, let's say, let's take a smile for example. We can describe a smile. It's going just up here mm -hmm. in the corners. But what kind of smile is it? Is it a cheeky mm -hmm. smile? Is it a kind of cynical smile? Is it a happy smile? It could be so many different smiles. So the the what smile deliver and what the intention of this smile would be completely different. It's not just about the shape. And I think that's the same about the movement. I mean, movement movement in itself, if it's only a formal dance, yeah, you can possibly maybe somehow describe it. Mm -hmm. But if it's a dance that have the intention to deliver, to tell a story or a content, or a, um, there is a lot about what is the intention and what is what the motivation that's for action that you do. Because this movement, if it's very slow, or this movement, if it's very slow, it's going to be like a caress. But if it's very fast, it's going to be like a slap. Mm -hmm. So it's the energy as well of the same kind of movement and the intention that this movement, that you have with this movement that you do. So, yeah, I think it's like miles away from each other. <laughs> and it's also the case, isn't it, that dancers' body, you know, that dancers' bodies in the 1930s, you know, Graham's and Humphrey's dancers were built to go into the ground. They were very, very solid. By the time you get to the 1970s, yeah. in looking at, I'm thinking about arc of light and the mm -hmm. beautiful one on technique, the dancers are like, you know, like this, they're tiny, they look like they're going to break, they look like yeah. their bodies are going to break and so forth. And, and, you, and those, the bodily habitus of the dancers will change over time in relation to the way in which they're trained, their pedagogic process, you know, their, their training, because in the 1930s, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't, you wouldn't be seen dead going into ballet class, and Martha Graham's dancers wouldn't have been seen dead, they wouldn't be allowed to go into Doris Humphrey's classes or anything like that. But by the 1940s, 1950s, you know, classical ballet becomes the, the very strong kind of mode of training, yet again, um, because it has very strong, you know, it gives them very good, um, you know, posture and so forth. Um, and, um, but, the dancers themselves will change over time. So what would have looked appropriate um, for a Graham or Humphrey dancer to do in the 1930s would look, you know, they just couldn't do it now because they don't have, their bodies are entirely different. Mm. Um, and whilst you celebrate different bodies, mm. this is not the case with classical ballet, yeah, yeah. which actually has got one body, frankly. Yeah. Um, it's usually white, um, and it's um, and it's it, and it's prepubescent female, um, and uh, of a certain height and of a certain turnout and so forth. So, um, uh, so whilst 
you might celebrate yeah. that other traditions do not. They celebrate sameness, not yeah. difference. And there are a lot of choreographers that want all their dancers to look exactly the same and to look yeah. exactly the same. So maybe for, for yeah, exactly, Actually. exactly. <laughs> so for this kind of work, maybe yeah, maybe you can notate it in a way. But for my genre, which is mm. much more physical theatre, dance theatre, or mm. I don't know what title you want to put on that. Um, I'm actually enjoying working with different performers with completely different skills, completely different kind of approach. And, and actually when I have to change the character or when I have to recast, I adapt it to the specific performers. I don't try them to, to make them being exactly somebody else. Mm -hmm. So if I have Romeo and Juliet and I have to do to replace the Juliet, I won't try the Juliet to be exactly the same Juliet because it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's the story that matters. Yeah. And the story will stay the same even if it's a bit different Juliet. So it's not about the form, it's about the content that you want to deliver. Mm -hmm. and, and then being relevant to the, being specific for this character, how this character will deliver it. But that's my... <laughs> but that's also about the relationship between the choreography the choreographer and the, and the performer and the dancer and how that interrelation works. Of course, as an, as an artist, I think every artist creates a different, yeah, in their different... Um, you have a sort of signature though, don't you? I mean, yeah. I, I think that despite the yeah. fact that it would be very different, for example, you know, you, you can yeah. certainly tell like an, you know, an Ashton Ballet from a Kenneth McMillan, yeah. but because there, is, yeah, there are kind of signature moves mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. as well. And I'm, you know, it'd be quite interesting to have a look and see what your signature <laughs> might be too in relation to uh, your there are few that can tell you. <laughs> I think that would that be really interesting. And there's, there's certain kind of falls that you do, which I think are really, you know, terrifying. Um, and uh, which uh, which and there's kind of and there's kind of certain uh, way that you use time. I think, which mm. appears to me, mm. um, although I don't know you very well, it appears to me quite striking mm. actually. Um, and yes, and change of direction and so forth. So I think, you know, these, yeah. although the dances would be very different, I mean, yeah. but it, it is your relationship or mm -hmm. one the choreographer's relationship yeah. with the dancer um, and how that dancer then is perceived as a co is that a co create, if other dancers yeah. a co creator, mm -hmm. you know. Do they make the work? I'm thinking of Sue Davis's work, yeah. for example, and the way in which she works with um, her company. Um, and uh, although those the, the dancers very much, I think, yeah. I mean, she starts from their bodies as opposed mm -hmm. to anything else. But in the end, it's a Sue Davis work, and the same as Cunningham's as Cunningham's yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. But how, how do you notate, how, for example, I think, how would I be able to notate my, my work I mean, there is a video documentation, mm -hmm. and I can write the, the intentions mm -hmm. that were there mm -hmm. to describe every specific, but I cannot imagine it. Mm -hmm. Actually, I got a present, which is a notation of a solo, a love notation, which mm -hmm. I'm very curious to give to somebody who doesn't know my work at mm -hmm. all and see, see how that. they interpret that. That would be a really interesting yeah, project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I, yeah. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, um, coming out of that, um, what prospect do you need technologies? You're talking about video documentation. Um, these technologies hold for the relationship between dance and text and do video blogs or YouTube or things like that take some of the role of scholarly work on dance that traditionally... 
Yeah. 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 Video work, because you, you, you use videos in your yeah. Yeah. website. Um, again, as I as started today, I said that I don't want to strict myself to one way of communicating. So I use video and animation and technology when I feel like that could communicate something that I cannot do in the other, in the other way. You might have catched this scene that the dancer is moving uh, a yeah. pillow in front of her mm -hmm. body and you see her naked body is underneath. Uh, she kind of, the idea that I had is how she could scan her body to see if she has any, you know, like when you do scanning to see mm -hmm. if you have anything inside your body. And I wanted to, I, it was a simple idea of she, her scanning with the pillow and, and where she moved her pillow, you see her naked body is underneath. I have a lot of, I have different things in this, that you have animation of hearts and one dancer transfer his heart to the other one and again it's like, so those kind of things of ideas that I want to to describe or to give to the audience and I use technology um, mm -hmm. to deliver them. I think it's very interesting. It's mm. something which is happening across the board, isn't it? It's happening very strongly in relation to music, for example. Um, it, it's happening in relation to, you know, to the place I work in relation to fashion, fashion blogs, and the way in which um, uh, fashion uh, bloggers, which are like personal fashion bloggers, have become so famous that actually they've been taken up by the magazines um, uh, and are now actually journalists within the magazines. But whether they would have the same character as someone like, you know, Alexander Shulman or, or whatever is something very different. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and I think that in a way it provides a potential for a democratisation of dance, which yeah. I think quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and um, at the same time, it raises questions about the relationship between lay and professional mm. thinkers, performers, or whatever which again need to be thought about and I would say this, you know, but I think that there's nothing like doing a good job if, you know, I mean, there is a certain amount of training that one does in order to get there, if you like so that seems to me quite important to, and I, I, I guess um, it hasn't hit dance in a big way mm -hmm. I think, although what has happened particularly with Web2 technologies and stuff, that you get you're beginning to get really interesting um, videos um, uh, which are kind of mixing and using new technology I think in quite interesting ways I, I, my concern about it might be that uh, I would hate it to overpower mm. the potential of dance itself actually um, uh, because I don't know because just because I prefer it actually yes. <laughs> um, and uh, and I did, for example, again, going back to this Diaghilev um, show that, um, in the spirit of Diaghilev and Wayne McGregor's work, who I, I respect very much, and uh, I, I just didn't like that because I thought it was too technological, and mm. I, thought, I thought the technology overpowered the potential for the movement, mm. um, whereas uh, in Russell Malifant's it just did not. Mm -hmm. Although he used light very interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, and so I think when that happens, there's a kind of diminution of the diminution of, diminution of the of the of the potential for mm -hmm. the power, if you like, that I would see for dance itself. Which of course is what I'm most interested <laughs> in. Really, mm. so. Do you think that um, in reference to the methodological problems we spoke about mm. earlier? 
does it help in any way to have an actual reference online of basically everything? Yeah, it's, it's quite useful, I think. I mean, uh, um, but yeah, of course, you never really know. But you would just yeah. take that to be the dance itself. I, mean, I, would take oh, a, yeah, yeah. I would just take a Cunningham perspective and say, what's in front of me is what is the dance. Oh, right. um, yeah. As opposed to trying to think, well, where did it start and where did it finish? Mm. Um, and I do, I find it quite interesting to be able to look at other people's work on yeah. that. Um, it doesn't, um, I, I, I don't think that it um, compensates for the liveness of the kind of experiential mm -hmm. notion of um, a, as a body watching other bodies um, moving in space and time. Um, but you know, for dances which are made specifically for mm. um, for video, I, I think you know some people do it really well, some people don't, and um, mm. and it gives you it gives you a snapshot. Mm. I quite like in, in your video, you've got it's almost like a snapshot of, mm. of, of seeing that work, so you get a sense of you get a sense of the power of it. I think, and mm. I think that's because technology is so much better now than it was, say, even five years ago. So you get a more visceral sense, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but I, um, it, the, the relationship of writing about dancing and um, in kind of blogging, or whatever, it doesn't seem particularly strong to mm -hmm. me yeah. mm -hmm. in the way that it is, say, for fashion mm -hmm. or, or something like that, um, which is much wider. And that has become very important. I mean, uh, and that stuff has become so important that people, places like Vogue, have had to set up websites. Yes. You know, so so in a way, they're using. It's no accident they're also using it for commercial gain. So, yeah. um, uh, and using these bloggers, these fashion, very famous mm. Susie Bubbles, <laughs> fashion blogger, as a kind of you know an important vehicle for their mm. kind of um, economic um, pursuit of wealth and power. I think we should open up to the, yeah. to the audience. Yeah. Think, yeah. 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 yeah.
I'm a sort of happy formalist, really, and um, I, you know, and happy structuralist as well. Um, I, I, I have to say, that my two favourite choreographers are Cunningham and Balanchine, um, and uh, and I can still get a lot out of that work. You know, I mean, I lo- that's the work that I love to see, actually. I, I do have to say that I can't help it, um, but I love Bausch and I, you know, and I because and I, and I love the power of dance theatre and 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 physical theatre, and I and I like and I also like I suppose political based work as well, but I don't like it to overpower the movement because then I think it gets, you know, perhaps even the issues get lost. Um, uh, in that, and I mean, I think in Jasmine's work, I don't think it gets lost at all because the, the dancers are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. They are just brilliant. Um, uh, uh, and also thinking about Bill T. Jones's work, which is also issue based, but actually breathtaking in its possibilities of what an amazing thing the body is, and how it can move, and what it can communicate through its very kind of processes of moving. So, yeah, and I like it all, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's the balance for me because obviously I do use movement and I do, you know, and I'm aware of the fact that our brain uh, very much like to see symmetrical things and to see harmony and, you know, mm-hmm. so it's something that I use as well and it's something that satisfies our brain as human beings. <laughs> and... Um, um, I think it's the it's the balance between because there are also something that the text and the and the uh, contents and cannot tell you have to to use the body and the form to to tell that to communicate that so questions. Just wait wait a second to the microphone runs. All right. <laughs> Hi, this is for Yasmin, mostly, I think. Um, presumably when you begin to create a piece, you have, some, you have the text already with you that you want to use. When you're working with your dancers and making the work, do you find that you already have ideas about how that text is going to... the movement of that text is going to need to go with it and make the movement to fit the text? Or do you find sometimes that the movement you create with the dancers tells stories that you weren't expecting and pushes you in other directions? So I'm kind of asking you how conscious... I think your process is. Does that make sense? Yes. Actually, the, when I start to create the work, I don't have the, con- the text ready. Uh, so, and I also never have the music ready or anything like that. So I'm working actually the other way around than a lot of choreographers. In terms of music, at least, I'm actually working just from the context, the context, con- from the content. So. Um, I'm starting with an idea, and I'm trying to see how we can tell that story in many different ways, and then I and then I select the one that I want to tell. And if I feel like I need a text to support that, or to add to that, or to have any, to add a layer to make it more complex, or then I will use, then I will add the text to it. I was curious about your comment um, that the content is really important for you. And here's the two scenarios I'm envisioning. You know, you go to the theater or you go to the movie and you come out with a bunch of people and some people just didn't get it. 
you know, and then you explain it to them and say, oh yeah, now I see, now I see the point, right? You know, but I think it's somewhat different when you come out of a modern dance performance. You know, what was there really to get is so much more fluid in a way. And somebody may come out and say, I didn't see anything, but I thought it was incredibly beautiful. Now, how as a as an artistic director? Do you, do you feel about these sort of various responses that people may have to your work? I mean, do you feel like, you know, oh dear, that person just didn't get it, you know? Or do you feel like there's a lot of things that that your work might convey and that could be interesting, including it was beautiful and I have nothing more to say? <laughs> you know, I hear so many reactions to my work, and it's exactly come from that, from this end to this end, and that's and I think that's the beauty of. Arts. Some people get it, some people don't get it, some people, when you read a book, some people read just the story that's been told and some people able to read in between the line and understand the metaphors and the references and, you know, so I, I don't expect from everyone to understand everything, but when I create a work, I want to be, to make it as rich as possible to me and the, the people I'm creating with, so I'm using a lot of references. Um, it was strange because we performed Justicia in in, um, in uh, Athens and in Kalamata, in, well, in a few places in Greece. And it's the first time that I read somebody understood my my uh, my, com my references to Greek mythology. Nobody else ever mentioned that before, and that's <laughs> and that's something that for me was so important because one of the one of the characters is the stenographer she called Cassandra, and Cassandra, you know, nobody ever noticed that whatever she's saying, it's all it's lies. It's always you know in the, in the piece itself, it's always contradict what actually happened. So it's that one of those things that you know that some audience might or the other references is about Ruth Ellis that Ruth Ellis was mm -hmm. the the last uh, woman in the UK to be hanged or to be uh, kind of um, punished with a death sentence, and her character was I when I put her name it was important for me I knew that the British audience or some of the British audience will know about Ruth Ellis and we know that that only 50 years ago it was still death sentence in the UK and. You know, and it was very relevant for me for the story that people will make the connection, mm -hmm. but obviously not everyone did the connection. You know, so for me it's about I want to be as rich as possible with it for me and for the people that I'm working with. But I know that some people only see the movement, and that's you know, and some people might listen to the text or just so you know. So it's um, and it's very frustrating actually to read dance critique because they mm. almost always <laughs> only kind of describe what they see and, and very judgmental, good, not good, yeah. <laughs> rather than create tribe. And I don't know if they don't have the tool or they don't have the, the space to, you know, because it's very small space to write, or, but it's very frustrating for artists that invest so much kind of into the content and at the end it's a description of the move from right to left, they did that and that. And, you know, we don't have a strong tradition of uh, dance criticism in the UK. I think it is stronger than the US. Mm. Um, but we don't really have that, although there are some really good dance critics. You know, which I think it might be where they're working, the contrast in which they work makes it so, it's so unintellectual, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really sad. You know. But then, you know, this is the UK, and it has a whole tradition of anti-intellectualism, doesn't it, running through its history. <laughs> I mean, 
democratization of dance. Yeah. Um, Jasmine, in order to convey what you want to convey, is it always, and excuse me because I'm not completely familiar with all your work, yeah. <laughs> um, so it is a very open question, um, is it always imperative that the people you work with as performers are always young and athletic? Do you ever work with a range of performers? I don't know whether you do or not, so that's why I'm asking. I would be so happy that you call them young, because <laughs> half, half of the cast are over 30. Okay. And Still relatively young. <laughs> I know. And as, 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 as dancers, mm. it's, it's not young, because mm. dancers normally stop dancing when they're 30. Mm. You know, a lot of dancers stop dancing when they're 30, especially female when they have families. And, and I'm so happy that in my company, we are a few parents that's dancing and still, you know, having family and getting into an age that we can carry on dance. And Pina Bausch, obviously, mm. have danced that. But a lot of companies, no, they only work to the 20s. And um, no, I'm not always working with young dancers, but also in, um, well, they have to be able to 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 do the physicality, so I think yes, they they need to kind of be able to do that. But more important for me is to work with people that are have open minds in terms of being able to adapt to different way of working <coughs> and not just being a dancer, not just being bodies, but be, but being performers and being able to deliver text and. Um, just go through an exploration because I'm exploring with them. I'm going with them through the process of exploration and creation. It's not me saying, okay, you do that, that. I'm kind of giving tasks and they interpret it and they bring a lot, a lot coming from them. So it's a very collaborative process. I'm looking for partners to work with on that kind of journey. Yeah, I think it's just the, the, the issue of dance is, well, dance generally, dance tends to look at the, the, the young and physical theatre um, and I'm looking into at the moment the problems that physical theatre encounters in a predominantly text-based theatre culture and I wondered what you thought about whether dance encounters the same kind of problems because it's the unfixable nature of dance what problems it encounters when the um, culture of criticism and theory is obviously predominantly text-based and then if there's any um, ways in which this is surmountable, can be surmountable, or maybe it's not a problem at all. I think it's quite a big problem. I mean, I mean dance scholarship is tiny. We all know each other intimately <laughs> across, across the board. I mean, I, you know, in the US and the UK. And I think, um, it, I suppose in a way, it, it hasn't established, although 
is much more mature now, but it hasn't established that, that tradition of which, for example, say, um, art criticism or, or, you know, which is about the visual work as well, um, <coughs> has established over those years. And I think, in a way, it's about, um, as we get more and more people into the academy, if you like, um, that is shifting, and there's now a whole kind of you know, second, third generation coming through who have been trained and, and developed their work um, in relation to having you know, looked at it in a slightly different way to a more traditional way. We have a more established tradition. I think when that, when that happens, you get more possibilities of, of beginning to do it. But I think it's also the case that dancers, like, you know, they're, they're, they're poorly paid. Not only do they finish younger, they end up, they're usually normally much less well paid than other performers. Um, um, they, they start when they're about zero. <laughs> um, you know, their bodies are continuously, although they might be at the height of it, their bodies are, you're watching them, you know, in many ways, they're in the process of disintegration, very slowly, obviously, um, um, and change. And dance itself, if you look at the newspapers or whatever, it's like a paragraph, you know, as you say, you know, where you get pages on music and pages on literature. But there's this kind of, and there's a bit of dance um, by Deborah Creek or something. Um, and uh, it's excellent. But, um, but it's very small. And, uh, and I think it's actually how do we build that tradition um, up in a way that um, might make it the equivalent through. Thing. And I think maybe it is about. It is about the fact, well, I'm sure it is about the fact that it is about, you know, the body's a very dangerous instrument, you know, yeah. in Western culture. And I think, um, uh, you know, despite the, all the body projects and the interest in the body, it's still something which is treated as slightly marginal. Um, and, and certainly in relation to um, discussions of that from particular traditions, so there's a kind of, there's a small philosophical tradition, there's Sociology barely touches on it, not very much. Um, you know, um, anthropology has done a lot of that, and um, ethnography has done quite a lot, but it's still very tiny. So mm -hmm. it's a way I think we have to build up tradition, um, and about actually how we begin to analyse and how we begin to look. And you know, and I think you know, there's a lot of people who are very keen to promote it. <laughs> um, and to celebrate, you know, its possibilities because it's so rich, mm -hmm. you know, for analysis. It's got everything there because as you start doing it, mm -hmm. you're talking about something else yeah. immediately, and then yeah. that's what makes it really exciting. Mm -hmm. And if only we can persuade those political scientists, <laughs> we're starting, we're starting uh, to come in and to get uh, sociologists, or you know, for them to come in and on writers, mm -hmm. perhaps maybe literary criticism to come in and, uh, and, and to write in a slightly different way about. Mm -hmm. Uh, about dancing, so forth, um, in the way that they might have written about boxing, there's a lot of stuff on boxing, yeah. but there's nothing very, no, not a kind of similar thing on dancing, which I think would be really good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks for the interesting talk. Um, my question is about so we're talking about a dialogue between uh, dance and text. Um, and I think Professor Thomas was talking about the, the unspeakable, um, which seems is this is the point where the dialogue might break down because we can, as I understand, we can represent some of uh, the text in dance, 
right? But there seems to be this element to it, which might be like things that we can't express in language, that we can represent in dance, but we can't. The dialect breaks down because you can't go back to the text. It seems, right? So there are these things that dance can go deeper, but text just per definition cannot grasp. Um, so I was wondering, well, first of all, whether you agree, and for Jasmine, whether this is something particular you use in um, some of your work and how you describe that to your performance, right? If it's something that they need to tap into that isn't represented in language. I'm not sure I understood the question, sorry. Um, so the question is, if you want to... Um, represent those things that we can't represent in text. Mm -hmm. um, how do you communicate that to your performers? Because it seems something that is that we can't represent in language or which is unspeakable. Like what, for example? I don't know. Well, Professor Thomas was talking about these things, uh, the unspeakable things. So maybe she has a good example. I don't know. Well, I think it's like. I think it's unspeakable, but you have to speak about it. You know, I mean, you can you could be like Wittgenstein and say, you know, <coughs> oh, we just end up in silence. Um, you know, that which we cannot speak at the end of the Tractatus, where he says, you know, what we cannot speak about, we just have to end up in silence. And I think um, the the task, if you like, is to try and to bring the unspeakable into the discourse, if you like, um, and. Uh, and I suppose the task then becomes, well, how do you do it? Um, and how do you do it successfully or not, as the case may be? Um, and I, I would think, well, from my, my own perspective, I think in many ways why I'm so fascinated by method, if you like, um, is because I want to be able to bring that stuff into being, if you like. And that doesn't mean to say it's the same or anything else, because it'll never be the same. Because, and I don't, I don't have a sense that, well, we'd lose the dance, because you never lose it, you know, because it's, mm. it's someplace else, actually, and you're talking about something. So, so I don't, I, you know, I think one has to do it. It might be, uns it is unspoken, if you like, but actually, how do we bring that into the dialogue? And I think that many, um, certainly dance writers have, um, you know, can, maybe Susan Foster, people like that, have been have been precisely trying to do that through different kinds of means. Um, um, and for me, one of the ways in which I feel that I do, well, I try to do that, is because because I use Laban's effort, qualitative movement analysis, if you like. So I constantly think about that when I'm actually writing and trying. Um, not use I use it as a toolbox, not as a because mm. it's got real problems with personality. You know, the notion of relationship of movement to yeah. personality, which I find very bit reichy and a bit problematic for me as a sociologist. But um, but the ways in which you try to so you think try to think through the movement, think about how you might actually speak about that, if you like, within the context of something that you're discussing, whether it's like sociality or power or, or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you just have to try and do it. You might be successful, you might not be, and that's the way it goes, I guess. But uh, you have to do it. Yeah, I think the, the, there are things that obviously you can speak about them, but 
then they will go to one area in your brain that you can, um, art has this power to connect to your subconscious in a way, and it just, you might get it from a different perspective, or it will touch you in a different way. Um, you know, in, in speech therapy, for example, a lot of time you use sensation as well to sense something that will make you be able to pronounce or to say it in a proper way. You use visual stuff. So yeah, I, I communicate to my dancers a lot of time uh, with words, but a lot of time, as they can tell you, I communicate to them with sounds. So there are sounds that we make up or we do, and they're, you know, they then it makes clear I want them to do a mushy movement. They know already what is a mushy movement, you know, or, I, or just have a whoosh. Or, and they know what I mean by that, you know, so it's like, um, yeah. oh, shapapa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have words, and that they already know me. They know what I mean by that. So there are different ways of communication. Just something I'm, I'm, I'm dying to ask when I'm hearing some of the idea of sociology of dance. Now, when I was a teenager, in, you know, when I was in college and all of that, the only way as a man you would be found in a dance class is because your your girlfriend dragged you in there, and then you would keep it, you know, as a secret from your mates, right? And, and now, now it seems like that has changed very much, you know, with hip hop coming in and so on. Now, what has happened here? How come how come boys are dancing? What, what's well, maybe, moving? Maybe this? the bodies are becoming more maybe they're becoming more engaged with body. Well, I think it's actually about strictly come dancing, isn't it? And uh, and uh, all of that stuff. But also um, perhaps it's a kind of different engagement with bodies. But I also know that you know when I was doing, I did some work on. Um, uh, ballroom dancing in the 1990s and uh, we had this uh, uh, this particular chap who we called fourth in the world because he and his partner were fourth in the world um, and they were teaching us how to do the tango and stuff like that it was fantastic I have to say and he said that he was from Northern Ireland and he said well you know it was terrible to be coming from Northern Ireland um, or uh, and being a man and actually dancing he said but once his friends noticed that he was getting all the girls <laughs> they all started to join him as well <laughs> um, and I think I mean, in the 1970s 1960s, you could have gone to a dance hall or a disco or whatever and you wouldn't have seen young men dancing actually by the late 1980s you would see them dancing by them, with each other in a way that might have not been acceptable before um, and um, and and I think with the development of you know things like rape culture or whatever, mm-hmm. where there was a kind of maybe it's a kind of democratisation of bodies in mm-hmm. some way, um, that that became a much more acceptable thing to do. But you know, mo- a lot of people do dance all the time. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I lived in in Boulder for many years, and it's a mountain climbing capital, yeah. and that was one of the reasons that the men would go to the ballet classes because yeah. it helped with your.